It's Tuesday, May 10th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, presented by Steamfitters Local 602. Learn how Steamfitters can benefit your business at steamfitters-602.org. Here's what we've got for you today. Metro named its new general manager and CEO, Randy Clark. He's set to start the job this summer amid mounting safety and pandemic challenges. I'm excited to be here this morning, and I'm honored to be named as the next uh, general manager and CEO of WMATA. And COVID is on the rise once again in the D.C. area, and many of our friends are sick. We talked to virologist Andrew Pekush about where things stand. I am still optimistic that we're at a different phase now. Thanks for joining us. I'm Luke Garrett. And I'm Megan Cloherty. We now know who is taking the helm at Metro. Randy Clark, who comes to the D.C. area from Austin, Texas, is stepping into what many consider one of the most challenging jobs in U.S. transportation right now, rehabbing an underfunded, aging, yet essential transit system in the nation's capital. There's no question he takes on a big job as current general manager Paul Wiedefeld steps down at the end of the month. Joining us to talk about Clark and what we know so far about his plans for Metro is Luke Lukert, the other Luke. So, Luke, we'll start with the numbers. This is a five-year deal. Do we know what Randy Clark is getting as far as compensation goes for getting this job? Uh, yeah, he's getting a lot of money. <laughs> That's what he's getting. Uh, right now, the salary is at $485,000 a year. So nice. a little bit less than Paul Wiedefeld, but uh, still a pretty penny. And how does that compare to like other transit organizations around the country? It's up there as one of the top. I, I think it's really? even higher than New York. And you were there at the press conference where he introduced himself. Good, good morning, everyone. Uh, it is a privilege to be here. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning, and I'm honored to be named as the next uh, general manager and CEO of WMATA. And beyond just like, you know, thanking the board and the hellos, what other topics did Clark address? Um, obviously, some questions were brought up about safety concerns. For a period of time, I was the chief safety officer in Boston through a legacy rail system that is actually significantly older than even WMATA. Um, and, you know, years and years and years of state of good repair issues have taken away on the biggest properties uh, in the country. And those are some holes to dig out of. And WMATA, I think, between Back to Good and Safe Tracks is doing a great job of that. And uh, there's obviously more to do. And, and uh, safety is the underlying thing that we have to do every day. It's kind of uh, one of the top things on everybody's mind. So we addressed the uh, 7,000 series cars and how they were pulled. And he's going to be the CEO and general manager as those cars are coming back. Right. Uh, if he if he comes, as they said, uh, later in in the summer. So he'll he'll be overseeing those cars coming back into service. And it's been a tough few years for Metro. So what was the vibe in the room? I mean, I know when you go to a press conference, you can kind of get a sense of, was there excitement? Um, I think there there was some excitement. I, I think that uh, Mr. Clark, General Manager Clark, uh, <laughs> seemed pretty excited about the opportunity. I really do think that uh, he impressed them as a board. That's what I wanted to were. ask you. Yeah, Clark yeah. comes to D.C. from Austin, and the transportation system there is called Cap Metro. Um, before that, he spent time in Boston and was actually there during the Boston Marathon bombing. Um mm. But he was tweeting about that earlier. Uh, D.C. is definitely a step up from Austin as far as size goes. Do, do you know why he was chosen? Was there any indication as to what his qualifications were that won him the job? Well, he, he just, as you said, had a, a breadth of experience. And then, you know, you think that Austin is a small little city, but it's it's pretty large. I mean, it, it's getting to be one of the, the larger metro areas in the country. So he's probably been overseeing uh, a lot of that huge growth. Just months before the pandemic, Cap Metro experienced some of the highest year-over-year ridership growth 
across the country with 17 straight months of increased ridership following the redesign and optimization of the organization's bus network. And at this press conference, we also heard the topic of fare prices come up. And, you know, Clark was not bashful about saying he really is ready to make some big changes to face these mounting challenges that Metro is facing. You know, we're going to have to have a, a, a serious conversation uh, regionally about commuting patterns, and all, but also activity and whether a, a trip at 10 o'clock at night and how that, you know, is equivalency to uh, a morning rush hour uh, trip. And so I think these are good conversations to have with the community. Now, you know, whether that works, I guess we're just going to have to see. Does Clark come to the table with any new ideas? I know you said he kind of wasn't going into specifics, but is there anything he did in Austin that could translate here, do you think? So he uh, ended up doing a really big project in uh, Austin, Project Connect. And basically what it did was it was a referendum in 2020 where he campaigned to get voters to vote uh, for property taxes. Austin voters agreed to one of the largest referendums for a transit expansion in U.S. history through a dedicated property tax, which means multi-billions of dollars will be spent on transit capital projects. The expansion includes light rail, downtown subway expanded bus services, and an all-electric fleet for Central Texas. And that actually matches up with Metro's 2045 plan, where they're hoping to make all of their buses electric by then. And Luke, correct me if I'm wrong, but Clark did speak directly to how he electrified buses in Austin during this press conference this morning. If the program can be advanced quicker, great, um, but we got to get it right. A lot of it also comes into not just the vehicles themselves, it's the actual infrastructure and working with the utilities. Austin has the uniqueness of Austin Energy is a municipal utility, um, so the coordination with the city and the transit authority has been incredibly collaborative. And I look forward to, you know, Pepco and the other uh, utilities in the region are going to play a big role in, in, in Wamata's success of that as well. And so coming back to D.C. for a second, does Clark have any ties to D.C. and does he know the area? So he did live here. He mentioned that he lived here and he was excited to move back to D.C. after, you know, doing a little bit of digging. Um, he was uh, a VP of operations and member services with the American Public Transportation Association that's based here in D.C. So he lived here for about two years. Mm, mm. And he seemed excited about the prospect of living in D.C.? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one thing that he, he stressed is that not only is he going to be the CEO of Metro, he's also going to be one of its most frequent riders. I'm going to be on the service every day. My wife will take the service every day. There is, I guarantee you, there is no one in this community who wants a safe, reliable, frequent service. It's more than the, C, the future CEO of this organization and, and that CEO's wife that will be on that service. So maybe you'll see him on your next trip there. Yeah, that's you true. Might, you I'll might look see him. I'll, I'll keep my eyes out. <laughs> All right, Luke Luker breaking it down for us. Our new GM of Metro, Randy Clark. We'll see what comes next. Thank you, Luke. Thanks. And after the break, we talked to a Johns Hopkins virologist about research being done this summer that could mean new vaccines in the fall. If you want to save money and grow profits on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC, or refrigeration project, go with the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. You can trust the experience of its workforce, members who have expertise in heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, and process piping to deliver work that's on time and on budget. For a partner you can trust who's mutually focused on your bottom line and to schedule, contact Steamfitters Local 602 at steamfitters-602.org. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Thanks for listening to the DMV Download Podcast. 
Megan and I do this show all on our own, and we appreciate you making us a part of your day. If you like the show or have a suggestion, let us know by leaving a review or rating the show. Both of those things help us get better and help us grow our audience. Thanks again. More people are getting COVID in the D.C. region as subvariants of Omicron keep cropping up and spreading fast. Thankfully, none of these new strains of COVID have completely evaded the immune response strengthened, of course, by vaccines or prior infection. But people are still getting sick. So should we raise our guard and our masks again? To get some answers, we turn to virologist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Andrew Pekosh. And Andy, I think we're all experiencing sort of this anecdotal COVID case rise, meaning you have a feeling that more people in your orbit are getting sick. But it's sort of been tough to get hard numbers on these rises as you know cities and counties aren't reporting as frequently as they used to. Um, to start, where are we COVID-wise? Are our cases really rising? So it does look like cases are increasing pretty much across the country. They're increasing at a relatively slow rate, nothing close to what we saw when Omicron first emerged, let's say the beginning of December, but certainly a steady increase. What's difficult really is to try to separate the fact that, you know, over the past couple of months, we've gone completely away from public health interventions. So as anybody knows from walking around, masks are harder and harder to come by. So, you know, the contribution of that versus new variants is really where scientists are sort of searching around right now to try to get a balance to see what's driving this. And so, you know, let's take a minute to talk about those variants. You know, we've seen BA1, BA2, BA3, BA4, and now BA2.12.1. You know, there's there's a lot <laughs> going on here. So where are these new variants really coming from? And should they make us uneasy about the future, concerned? What are these things? Yeah, that Greek alphabet simplification lasted about, what, six months or nine <laughs> months before uh, things went went off the rails again. Not unexpectedly, other versions of Omicron are now circulating. You know, viruses mutate. And when you see the number of cases that we had with Omicron, that just gives the virus lots and lots of opportunities to accumulate mutations and to select for variants that are circulating a little bit more effectively than that first Omicron version that came through. They continue to put up a few mutations that evade some immunity, but the message is is really the same now as it has been for over a year now. If you're vaccinated, if you're boosted, you've got pretty good protection, at least from severe disease. And if you do happen to get infected, the silver lining is that uh, your immunity is even stronger after that. The metric that we all kind of have been pointed toward is the hospitalization rate now. It used to be community spread. I feel like I'm looking at different parts of the of the uh, spreadsheet yeah. when I when I sign on and they're reporting the numbers. But are, are we seeing a big rise in severe illnesses with the new variants? Or is it similar to the past variant where if you get it, you'll probably be OK if you're vaccinated and boosted? So far, the signal of hospitalizations is just starting to creep up. And that's expected because usually hospitalizations lag cases by two weeks to three weeks or so because it takes a little bit of time to develop the severe COVID after you've gotten infected. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the real variable right now is, um, as you mentioned earlier, what, what are the real case numbers? Many people are using rapid antigen tests. They may not be reporting those tests. Many people are just toughing through their their illnesses 
and maybe not even going out to find testing these days. And so the actual numbers of cases is probably higher than what's being reported. But again, by what factor? We just don't know. That's interesting. So you can assume that a lot of people aren't reporting because they, they're assuming they have COVID. They're just going to stay home, do what they're supposed to do, and, and they don't need to go seek like, you know, any kind of treatment. I think that's part of it, at least anecdotally, right? Yeah. And some of it probably comes from just COVID fatigue, right? We've been dealing with this for a while. I would have liked to have seen higher vaccination rates before this attitude really started to come through in the population. Mm. But I am still optimistic that we're at a different phase now where this population immunity that people have gotten through vaccination boosting and then infection is really going to dampen the uh, the total size of any surge that's coming, at least for the spring or the summer. And should therapeutics like Paxlovid and possibly new vaccines that are more designed for Omicron, should those support that optimism as well? Absolutely. I think Paxlovid's been in the news a little bit about some potential rebounds after treatment. But at the end of the day, it is a fantastic drug. And it really is one of the most important tools that we can now throw into our arsenal to fight uh, COVID-19. Because, you know, if you do get infected and you're in a high risk group, that drug is there for you to take to really even further lessen the chances that you get severe COVID. And as this virus mutates, I mean, I imagine the vaccines have to kind of (laughs) mutate with it, if you will. Is there a new vaccine on the horizon that will likely have to take, you know, a yearly dose of or do you think it's going to consistently change with the virus? This is a big question right now. It's been surprising but reassuring how well that initial vaccine has held up to some of the variants, particularly after boosting. I think there are a lot of studies right now going on testing new versions of the vaccine. There are even a couple of studies that combine two different variants to try to even further induce a stronger and broader immune response. We should be hearing about these studies in the next month or two. I fully expect that we'll be talking about boosters in the fall for COVID-19, hopefully combined with boosters for things like flu. But I really hope that over the summer and spring, you know, that we're not going to have huge surges in cases, giving us some time to prepare. Right. And, you know, vaccines and boosters, all these things take money. And we're hearing from the White House and Congress that they're running out of COVID funding as is. And there's a big push for some more funding on surveillance, vaccines and, and treatments. Are we still kind of in the woods in a sense where we need government intervention as far as funding goes? So we do need to keep that infrastructure up. It's one thing to maybe not have all of the public health interventions in place, but we really need to make sure that our ability to test, sequence, and then vaccinate and treat is as easy as possible for the general public. And that's where federal funding can really step in to help. For all of my parent friends out there who have really had to keep like it was the fall of 2020 if they have a kid who's under five years old. Is there any conversation about something coming for little ones as far as a vaccine? Yeah, that should be coming really soon. The pharmaceutical companies have had a hard time getting the dosing right for those zero to fives in particular. Safety is there. So it's no doubt that the mRNA vaccines are safe for that population. It's just making sure that you're giving them the right dose to provide good protection has been more challenging. Hmm. We want to make sure that that population has something to be able to protect them from, from infection. Again, hopefully this will all be in place by the fall when we really expect to see everybody going back to schools and, and, and those kind of things. 
And moving from the kid population, zero to five, to the elderly who are really at most risk, where are they at this stage of the pandemic? We have to really pay attention to those vulnerable populations. And that's another reason for us to really pay attention to case numbers, because the more cases, the more likely that these viruses will get into those vulnerable populations. And so, you know, things are looking better, but we can't let our guard down completely because we do risk having uh, rebounds, particularly in people who are more prone to severe disease. So if you have someone in your life who is over 65 or under five, you kind of want to treat them essentially the same, right? You want to be washing hands constantly and maybe wearing a mask more than you would if you were not interacting with them. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that even though masking is not mandatory now, there's certainly nothing wrong with wearing it, particularly if you're in a high-risk population. Right now, when I go out to the grocery store and other places, I still wear a mask. I think that's something that we as a society should be more accepting of because it will help us protect, again, everybody from infection, but in particular, the vulnerable populations. All right. Well, Andrew Pickash, thanks so much for joining us and, and filling us in. My pleasure. And before we go, we've got to talk about the Washington Harbor, which has been getting a lot of attention on social media, TikTok and Twitter. Wait, why? Well, so there's a TikToker at best addresses like the TikTok name, and he's a real estate agent in D.C. And he basically did a video around, you know, the Georgetown Harbor, that big complex kind of residential businessy place. Yeah. And he showed how this building could literally turn into a boat. Into a boat? Yeah, pretty Wait, much. like the restaurants and the, the all those like really expensive condos? It could just float. And so what? I actually did a little bit more digging, and I found this article that was published in the Civil Engineering Practice publication back in the summer of 1993, in and around when this building was really made. And I learned some pretty crazy things. First of all, there are 50 floodgates hidden around this entire like building structure. 50. I'm going to try and count them next time I go. I was going to say, because I know about the wall. I mean, the Potomac always comes right up to the fountain there when there's a ton of rain or flooding. Yeah. Um, But you're talking about, like, entrances to alleyways and, I don't know, back doors and stuff. Pretty much every ground level entryway, there's going to be a hidden little door there. And it's because not only is the Potomac there, but there's also a hidden aquifer that runs right beneath it. So that's why it could really float. And so they had to do all these crazy things. And then they brought in these engineers who had worked previously on nuclear containment plants because nuclear reactors need to be cooled down. So often they're right near the ocean or a river. Mm-hmm. So they bring in these like architects to build this you know, residential building in, in Georgetown. Wait, so theoretically, if there was enough rain, this whole thing would just pop like it would just like float to the top and float down the Potomac. Yes, but they engineered around it. And they did that by basically allowing the structure to intake water to act as a counterbalance. So when you walk around, if the water levels go above six feet, there are actually these grates and water will like go into the parking garage and then that'll act as a weight. And it's just like a physics, you know, counterbalance, counterweight kind of deal. That's but so random. Why are, why are you bringing this up? Were you down there or something? I was I was down there for a run yesterday, and I saw, like, the silt kind of go up on that dock that's right there. Yeah. And the floodgates, you know, were up, and the water was, you know, pressed up against it. And But it's uh, crazy. I mean, it, I'm really going to go down there now and just do a little survey, just walk, walk around in my little notebook and Part see, of me wonders, see what like, I can find. Yeah, I wonder if, like, the Watergate and the Kennedy Center and those all have, like, their actual boats, too. Uh, who knows? I mean, I was, <laughs> If you find out, let us know. Well, that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download, sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. 
Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. You can also follow us on social media where we're posting every day. You can find out more about the podcast and become one of our VIP listeners at dmvdownload.com. The DMV Download is a product of WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, online at wtop.com and on the WTOP News app. Have a great night, guys. 